Guys, last night I told you that I was from the rural backcountry part of San Diego. But I didn't tell you who moved in seven houses down from us. On a, on a 40-acre lot, we start seeing tractors come in and big old water trucks come in. And we're like, oh, they're probably building a house or something. And then we start seeing mountains of dirt move, just being piled, water trucks spraying, more piling. And we find out through the talk of the neighbors that the person who has moved in is like a famous X Games freestyle dirt bike guy. And he's literally building his own X Games dirt bike park seven houses down from us. And then COVID hits. And now the X Games are not happening in arenas packed with fans. Instead, the X Games come to this guy and they go, hey, could we do the X Games at your house? And so last year and this year, the X Games literally happened seven houses down from us. Like I'm, I'm driving to work and I see this giant trailer coming up the road with a helicopter on it with like the Monster Energy Drink logos on it. And then a giant trailer behind it pulling all the like famous guys' dirt bikes. And it just mind blowing. And then we see the helicopter and the drone just and like the mom of the famous guy sends a text, sends like a Facebook message to all the neighbors in the area. And she's like, Oh, hey, we're having the X Games at our house if anybody wants to come over. Like, what? My kids hear about this and they see all the stuff coming up the road and their little heads just explode. They're, they absolutely catch dirt bike fever. And my seven-year-old is like, oh my gosh, dad, what kind of dirt bike do you think would fit me? Do you think if I had a dirt bike, I could do double backflips? Like, how long do you think it would take me until I could do double backflips? How much does a dirt bike cost? If I did enough chores, could I get dirt bikes? Oh! Like they're just, they can't get dirt bikes out of their brains. And, and here's the thing. It's like Thanksgiving time is like the end of November. They probably have these little thoughts in their heads of like, Christmas is six weeks away. What if? <gasps> and I know for a fact that this idea kept them up at night. <laughs> Megan, my wife and I, we, we were not helping them. Sometimes we would like drop obscure hints like, um, hey guys, you know how like four days ago you were talking about like, oh, we like dirt bikes. I don't know, but today you're probably bored of them, right? Like if you had a dirt bike, you wouldn't even want it. And they're like, what? No, of course we would want a dirt bike. And, and we would drop more hints like this. Like, well, you know, we don't know. We don't know if we can afford them. Like, we don't know. Maybe someday if mom and dad can save up enough, we'll get them. But in their brain, in the back of their heads are like, it is possible. Dirt bikes could be coming. When, how, where, when, how, where. Double back flips. Oh my gosh, we can be like a fan. Right? So much so that, do you guys ever have those, uh, those advent calendars where it's like you open up the day of the month and there's like a gross little chocolate in there that tastes like wax and you're like, mm, Christmas, right? Well, now my kids have dirt bike down the brain. They open those up and they eat the chocolate and they don't even care, but they're like counting the squares. Like, oh, how many, one, two, three, 19 days until Christmas. Oh my gosh, it could be, it could be. And then they have to like double down. So they make those paper chains, you know what I'm talking about? And they put it in their room, and the first thing they wake up, they, go, they run out, and they like rip the paper chain, and they count the other loops. One, two, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Oh, my It's ten days to Christmas. And my youngest one, when he gets excited, something happens to him. Like, he, he gets overtaken by, like, the spirit of a miniature toy cup chihuahua, and he just can't help but shaking. He's like, <laughs> and he makes a noise. I don't even think he knows that he makes it. I've only seen it, like, three or four times, but he'll be like, <laughs> He's going to pop a blood vessel on his head. You know what I mean? The anticipation of what Christmas could be is killing them. Christmas morning comes. They wake up. I don't know what they're expecting. They walk out into the living room. <laughs> There's not dirt bikes in the living room. And then they realize outside the front window, 
Mom and dad had gone on Craigslist. We found really old ones and fixed them up and cleaned them and make them nice. And they opened the door. And they almost peed their pants and their minds were blown and they got dirt bikes for Christmas. <laughs> and that kind of anticipation, that kind of like, I cannot stand it. I can't believe it. How many days? It's coming. Is it coming? We don't know when. We don't know how, but it's coming. That's exactly the vibe, the moment, the tension in the air that we find when we jump back into our story tonight in John chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, please turn back with me to John chapter 1. And we're going to start tonight in verse 19. When you get to John chapter 1, verse 19, please say, yeah, yeah. You're not there yet. I'm sorry for doubting you. If you are there, you, you are a Bible scholar, okay? Yeah. Okay, now you sound scary, but I'm kind of cool with it. Okay, as you turn, listen to this verse that I'm about to read you because it, what it's saying is the anticipation, the excitement for what's coming isn't just the people at the time that we're going to read about. It's everyone for all time. In Luke chapter 10, verse 24, the Bible says, I tell you, many prophets and kings long to see what you see but they didn't see it. And they longed to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. The anticipation, the excitement that everyone is looking forward to is that thing that we were talking about last night, that God, the word, the logos, the one who holds everything together, the all-powerful God of the universe has become flesh to dwell among us. Where, when, how, it's now. Here we go. John chapter one, verse 19. Just, just whisper ye ye if you're there. You guys are so respectful and ready. I love it. All right. Here we go. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you, are you the prophet? He answered, Nope. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet. He said, I am the voice of the one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Here, here's the first thing that's fascinating to me about this passage, you guys. This person, John the Baptist, or in our skit, right, Buddy the Bath Giver. <laughs> that was pretty good. He, he is a wild man. Like the Bible paints this picture of him in Matthew chapter 3 where he just like lives out in the desert. I don't know if he's camping or like nomadic or homeless or whatever, but he's just like out there. And it says that he's wearing this giant just flap of camel fur held onto his body with a belt. And then my weird brain starts to wonder like, did he go camel hunting? Like did he go conquer a camel and skin it? Like, whoa, ha, ha, ha. The Bible goes further and it says that his diet, the thing that he ate all the time was locusts dipped in honey. And if you're like, I know what a locust is, that's a grasshopper, you're wrong, okay? A locust is a Hulk Hogan grasshopper. It's a grasshopper on steroids. Like these things probably were like corn dogs that you could just dip in honey and bite off their head. Like this is the guy that God entrusted with. The whole world will know that God, Logos, has become flesh to dwell among you. God is in the world. <laughs> Buddy the bath giver with fleas is the one to tell everybody. You know what I'm saying? 
And these guys are, are interested. They're like, are you, we, we have to know. The anticipation is killing us. Are you, you keep saying that the Messiah is coming. These priests have been sent by other religious leaders and they're like, just give us details. We have to know when, we have to know why, we have to know how. What are you? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Are you the Christ? What are you? Give us the details. And he speaks kind of vaguely. I am the voice, the one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. I'm going to tell you more about this phrase later, but for now, one of the things that he's referencing is this idea of like a king. When a king would come into a town, can you picture this, right? He's not just walking by himself like, hey, what's up, Joe? How's it going? Yo, I'm here. He would come in like all the pomp and circumstance on like his giant carriage, right? And there would be someone going in front of him like, the king is here. Make way, make way. Probably you know, galloping like this, like, and his job is to make the way straight, to make sure that there's no obstacles in the road. He's like elbowing people out of the way. He's like, he's coming. The king is here. He probably had like a flute to announce it, like, the king. I just made that up. John the Baptist was probably not a flute player, okay? But, <laughs> oh, thank you. This there may be more in the future, we don't know. And while John the Baptist didn't play a flute to announce the coming of the Messiah, God with us, this is what he says. He's in verse 27, he's freaking out, and he's like, he, the one who comes after me, the thongs of his sandals are not worthy to untie. He's like, this guy is such a big deal. He's so powerful. He's literally God. And I'm not even worthy enough to do the job of a slave and untie his sandals for him. Like, he's, he's a real deal. He's coming. And everybody is excited. We're told in verse 35, the next day, that John is hanging out with two of his disciples. And he, like my little seven-year-old, is so excited in anticipation that Jesus is coming. He sees Jesus and he just like shrieks like, look, it's the Lamb of God. He's so excited. And the two disciples that are with him are like, wait, wait, wait. That's him? That's the Messiah? That's the one? John, listen, no offense. You've been a great teacher, but we're out of here. We're following that guy. And so they race to Jesus and they just sit with them and they hang out with them. And in verse 40, it says this, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. And he brought his brother to Jesus. And there's another guy in verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and told him, hey, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The thing that everyone has longed to see, God with us, has finally come. The anticipation is over. We know he's here. It's Jesus. And the crazy thing, you guys, is there's a layer to this story that's like secretly submerged that you, you might not know about. This is the layer. Every single person that we just looked at in this passage it's kind of weird. This is like unique right now. Every single person is actually quoting a different part of the Bible. Like they're not just talking. They're literally quoting a ton of verses in the Old Testament. Like when John is like, behold, the Lamb of God. He's quoting a prophecy that was written 700 years before he was even born in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. Just let me read this to you real quick. Right, Because he called Jesus the Lamb of God. Well, this prophecy 700 years before says he was afflicted and oppressed, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. I skipped around, but the idea is that 
when John is shouting out, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he's quoting the Bible. And you're like, well, he's in the Bible. Why is he quoting the Bible? That's kind of weird. When, it's, when he says that I'm the one crying out in the wilderness, he's not just saying, wee, I get to be the one that goes, here comes the king. He's again quoting a prophecy in Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and it says that same exact thing. Even the religious leaders, when they come to him, and they're like, hey, John, you keep talking that God has come here into the world with us. Help us understand, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the Christ? What they're referring to is their knowledge of the Bible. They're thinking of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, and prophecies that they know about the Messiah coming. And then even the disciples, when they just show up for the first time to meet the Jesus, the God of the universe that they're going to follow, you know what they're referencing? When they're like, hey, we, we found him. We found the Messiah, the one that Moses wrote about. In their brains, they're thinking about the Bible. There's a passage that Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 through 19, where it talks about a prophet to come. And like, we found the guy that Moses is writing about. And some of you are like, okay, TJ, you started off great. You're talking about dirt bikes. This whole thing got boring because you're talking about people in the Bible quoting the Bible. This is the point, you guys. For every single person that we just looked at, the truth of the Bible is what they organized their lives around. The truth of the Bible is what determined their interests, the way that they viewed themselves. You could even say their self-esteem, their purpose, what, what they're going to do with their lives, their very actions. All of that is determined by the truth of the Bible. And I would make the point to you that even those of us in this room who are Christians, we are different than them. The Bible is not, if you're honest with yourself, the truth that you and I organize our lives around. It's not the primary thing that determines what we're interested in or what our self-esteem is or, or what we think is cool or how we view ourselves or the world or, or our actions. It's not the thing that informs that. It's something else. Maybe, I don't know, maybe some of you in here is because you don't necessarily trust the Bible. And I, I want to give you a couple things that are just reasons that I think are awesome, I hope they're awesome to you also, reasons that we can absolutely put our trust in the Bible and the Word of God, okay? So here's the first one. The first reason that we can trust the Bible is because the Bible is literally rooted in the character of God. There's a passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Just listen to this. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. God breathed. What that means is, again, think about who God is and his character that we established last night. It's not just true that he exists. We prove that, hopefully. But he is the God who sets truth into motion. People can't do it. God is the God of truth, right? We said that he's, in John 1.14, he's the God of grace and truth. And we established that he's a good God. And so this good God looks at you and me and he goes, if you trust that I'm good, then guess what? This Bible that's, that's God-breathed, that's my word, then you can trust that my words are good and true, right? And some of you might be tracking and you go, okay, I understand what you're saying. But TJ, what you don't know about me is I'm a genius and I'm a skeptic and I'm going to need a little bit more to scratch that itch before I start trusting the Bible the way that you're saying these people are where I organize my entire life around it. It might be a good book. It might have some good teachings in it, but I don't know that it's worthy of organizing my entire life around like, that sounds like a lot of work. Well, here's the second thing I'll give you. Do we, do we have any nerds in here? Please, please, you know what? Raise your hand proudly if you're a nerd. Give me a... 
Yeah. Guys, I am of the belief that nerdism is a very good thing, okay? And I want you to understand, this is how I'm going to treat you right now, okay? There are lots of people who would look at you and they would say, you're just a junior hire. You're not smart enough to pay attention to what we're about to talk about or understand it. You don't have an attention span or the ability to focus to really grasp these things that we're about to talk about. But, and I say this not flippantly, I think you're awesome. I think you're smart. I don't even just think that. I think that you really need and value this nerd stuff that I'd like to give you. So would, would you be down if we go a little bit Indiana Jones archaeology? You'll roll with me? You'll pay attention with me? Can we? Yeah, all right. Okay, okay. Whoop. Well, here we go. The second reason that the Bible is worth trusting so much that, that we should be willing to organize our lives around it is because it's inerrant and wholly infallible. And I know those are nerd words, but here's simply what they mean. It means the Bible has no errors and it's never wrong. This is, I, I told you, I'm treating you like a grown-up. I'm going to read you a long verse. Think, just go, just, I want you to think this in your head. I will make my brain understand what I'm about to hear. Here we go. Okay. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Here's what it says. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable or accurate. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets through humans, I'm sorry, prophets though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Maybe some of you have heard things about the Bible that, you know, through translations or it's been around so long that as they, as they rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it, like mistakes got in there and things were changed. And we don't even know that we can necessarily trust what the Bible says in its current form right now. Well, what this verse just said that I just read is that it's not true just because it was like well-written initially. It's wholly accurate, without error, never wrong, because the God of the universe protects it. Like with the Holy Spirit, he makes sure what you have in front of you is what he wants you to have in front of you. The truth of the living God in written form for benefit for you. And the amazing Indiana Jones thing is that I can prove it through stuff that's in the dirt. Guys, when I was a little kid, I would see those Indiana Jones movies. And the hair on the back of my neck would stand up. Like I just wanted to like salute and be like, I will be the most amazing archaeologist in the whole. Like I got so like, oh my gosh, I just want to discover dinosaur carcasses in the dirt and find buried treasure and be like the world-renowned archaeologist of Indiana Jones, you know? And the coolest thing is that that stuff for real happens, especially within the realm of biblical archaeology. So here we go. I'm not, I'm not going to bore you with more words. I'm just going to tell you cool stuff. Here we go. There's a place. It's a cave. And it's called Qumran. And I got to go there. And in the cave of Qumran, one of the many caves of Qumran, was made one of the most amazing discoveries that proved the reliability and ac accuracy of the Bible that blew everybody's minds who understood the value of what was discovered. And the way it was discovered, by shepherd boys about your age. And they were out with their sheep 
in the desert and they saw this cave up on the side of a hill and they did probably what you would do and they were like, let's have a competition and see if we can throw a rock and make it land in the cave. And so they're like, you suck, you missed. <laughs> oh, I almost got it in that time. And then one makes it in. And they hear this sound. That was a terrible sound. Something broke, okay? There you go. And they're like, whoa, what? There's like, there's stuff in there? What if there's... We have to go find out what, what that is. We're about to go on an adventure. So they give each other a boost. They climb up into this cave. And what they see when they peer over the rim of this little cave, what well, changed the world. What they see in there are metal tablets made out of copper with ancient inscriptions written on them. They see clay tablets with other ancient inscriptions written on. They see perfectly sealed glass jars with inscriptions on the outside of the jars. Did I say glass? clay jars. And on the inside, there's like scrolls and papyrus. Papyrus is like an old version of paper. Where they would take tree pulp and just and smush it together. And it was like thick paper. And then they'd write on it, right? They found all these different writings. And from the discovery that those two young shepherd boys made, archaeologists went on to find over a hundred Ks with sealed jars and copper tablets like this having multiple books of the Bible perfectly inscribed on them, dating all the way back to 150 BC. That's like 2,200 years ago from today. And the most amazing thing about it, the reason I tell you that isn't just to be a nerd for nerd's sake, is to say, I'm getting tingly thinking about this, you guys. When they read what was in those books of the Bible, do you know what they found? They were the same as what's written in the Bible that you have in your lap. The Bible is never wrong. It's perfectly accurate, supernaturally so, because God protects it because he wants you to have his living and active word, the truth of God that you can trust in front of you. Because remember, we said Jesus came to earth because he wants to be with you. He wants you to know the one true God. And so he gives us the divinely inspired, accurate, without error Bible. Can I give you another nerd thing? I don't know. Some of you are like, we're getting sleepy. Okay, here's one. They discovered in Israel an underground cave city. Oh, that's not a cave. No, no, no. What is that? What are we looking at here? I got to go run over there. That's, oh, that's go to the next one. This is the cave city. The cave city is called Moresha. And the reason this is such a big deal, I, I got to walk through these caves, you guys. It blew my mind. There's this guy in the Bible named Herod. He's a terrible king. He was actually king during the time that Jesus was born. And King Herod is written about multiple times in the Bible, but other extra biblical historians didn't really talk about him. And so when people would look at the Bible, they'd be like, the Bible is inaccurate. It's making up names. This is just another reason that's not true and you can't trust it. And then they find the cave city that King Herod grew up in as a young boy. They didn't just find the place he grew up. They found this other place called Masada. Let's show that picture. King Herod was lavish. He wanted people to know how amazing and powerful he was. And so he built multiple mountaintop fortresses, multiple mountaintop palaces. Like this cascading down, thing down on the front would have had different porches and pools all the way down on those levels because he wanted people to know how powerful he was. And they discovered this place called Masada. I have stood at the top of that in the middle of the king's chamber. And again... This was one of those moments where the thing that they used to look at the Bible to go, it's inaccurate, it's not true, who's this Herod guy, it's a fake. Through time and archaeology came to prove, nope, the Bible is the inerrant, unfallible, living word of God. It's true and you can trust it. Can I give you another one? 
Okay. This one isn't old archaeology stuff. This one, oh, I'm getting tingly because it's so cool. This was an active archaeological dig when I was in Israel. I saw this one in process, you guys. There's another point of discrepancy in the Bible. Jesus, uh, in the New Testament, there was a lady who would go and listen to him teach. Her name was Mary Magdalene. There's some stories you can read about her. But people would read her last name and go, Magdalene, what is that? It's probably a mistake in the Bible. Usually people's last name, like Magdalene, would be the place that they're from. And when they looked at the history that they had at the time, they would go, Magdalena, Magdala. There's, there's nothing like that around Capernaum, the place where Jesus was teaching. Again, Bible's inaccurate, wrong, probably just a mistake in translation, right? Well, I went over there. And while I was there, there was a guy who was like, I want to build a gas station and make money from selling people gas. And when he went to build the gas station and they started digging, this is what they found. This is the synagogue or the little church that was in an ancient town directly adjacent to the place where Jesus taught for three years. And this little town was called Magdala. Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala. Every time that the Bible was brought into disrepute, archaeology over and over again is constantly proving it's exactly what God said his word is in 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. It's infallible. It's never wrong. It's always true. He's protected it and guided it because he wants it to sit in your lap so that you can read the true words of a true God who loves you and wants you to know. Is that kind of cool? It's nerd stuff, but aha, I love it so much. All right, well, here's, here's the third and final thing that I would give you in reasons that we can trust the Bible. The last one is this. The third reason that we can trust the Bible is God's living and active word of truth is because it lines up with our experience. And I, I want to go kind of a side direction bef before we get into this. Um, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 6 says this. Well, I'll just read you verse 5. It says, every word of God proves true. It's not just that every word of God is true in idea. It proves true in our experiences. And I came to see this firsthand. I understood it. No one taught it to me. I realized this from my life as a junior hire. This is what I mean. Guys, when I was in junior high, I didn't want to be a Christian. I didn't want the rules of being a Christian. I didn't want someone like a God dictating what I could do or not do. It just felt like a killjoy. Like I couldn't have fun. I couldn't do what my friends were doing. And it sounded terrible. And so I thought, I'm going to go find truth elsewhere. That's not the way I thought of it. But I was like, I'm going to go live my life. And I'm going to do what I think makes me happy. I'm going to do what I think is cool and what I think is awesome. And so instead of looking to the Bible, just like these people did at the beginning of our story, right? Instead of organizing my life around the truth of the Bible, instead of letting the word of God be the thing that determined my self-esteem, my value, my interests, my purpose, my actions, I went to the world and I said, what does the world say is going to make me happy and satisfied and fulfilled? That's what I want. And for me as a junior higher, I looked around maybe like you and what the world was saying, what my friends were saying, what the TV was saying, was that the thing that's going to make you happy is being popular. Just go, just go impress people. Go be funny. Go wear what the popular kids are wearing. Go do what the popular kids are doing. And I was like, sweet, I'm going to try that. And you know what? I was actually kind of successful at it. I, in my eighth grade yearbook, I was, I was voted by other kids, best all-around person, <laughs> which is a terrible, no, 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 that's ridiculous. And you would think, TJ, hooray, you made it as an eighth grader, you accomplished true happiness. But this is what happened, you guys. I find out that this, this idea that the world was peddling me as a truth was actually a lie. 
Because the second that I set myself towards, I want other people to like me, I want to be popular, you know what I had to be constantly worried about? Do other people think I look attractive? Do other people think I'm funny? Do other people think I'm smart? Do the other guys that I hang out with think I'm strong? Do I? And so I constantly had to do things. I had to spend money on clothes. I had to make sure that I'm saying the right jokes, that I'm talking about the relevant stuff, that I'm flirting the right way. That I, and, and this is what happened, you guys. If I'm honest, it didn't make me happier. It didn't make me more secure. It didn't make me more confident or fulfilled. It made me like a shell of a person. I was now crippled with anxiety and insecurity because I had to constantly go, oh no, do they think I'm cool? Oh no, do they think I'm cool? Oh no, like it made me hollow on the inside. This truth that the world said, just get, just get popular and you'll be happy was not a truth. It was a lie. And the lies just kept building up. I kept going back to the world to go, you're gonna be my source of truth. When I got into high school, all the, all the cool kids in high school were like, you know what you gotta do? You gotta come to these Friday night parties, man. They're the best. They're incredible. They're gonna blow your mind. You're gonna have so much fun. You'll end up with a girlfriend and drinking with your buddies and doing these things that are like sketchy and cool. And it's, you're gonna be, I mean, they weren't saying this, but what was the, what was the idea? If you follow these things, that's where happiness and fulfillment and awesomeness is. And I literally remember thinking in high school, the first 20 minutes of that Friday night party that I went to were fun. We're joking, hanging out, having a good time. But then everybody has a red solo cup in their hand. And they're one cup in, two cup in, three cups in. And now some people are angry drunks. And these guys are cussing. And these girls are drama. And these people are fighting. And this guy's thrown up in the bushes. And you know what I think in my head? Not a single one of these people is going to even remember what happened tonight. Like this is completely pointless. This is, this is another lie that was pitched to me as a truth from the world that like this is, this is the thing that's worth organizing your life around. This is where you're going to get value and self-esteem and purpose and this, you should let this inform your actions and your interests. And I walked away again in high school going, that's not it. It's a lie that, that was sold to me as a truth because I got into college. And in college, the new version of this lie was just be impressive, just be successful, just do the things that's going to take for you to be wealthy. And so that's what I did. I thought that's, that's the truth. That's where happiness and fulfillment and purpose in this life comes from. And so all throughout high school, I got a 4.67 GPA. I took all the honor classes. I got into every college. No, no, no. I'm telling you this is an embarrassment. Okay, hear me out. Hear me out. Because I was believing a lie. I got into UCSD, into the Aeronautical Engineering Academy, and, and I'm, I'm about to sign the loan papers. I'm glad I didn't because I was tens of thousands of dollars, and I would have, whoa. But I'm touring the campus, and I find out that the day before, a student at the academy that I was about to go to had climbed up on the roof of that aeronautical engineering building and jumped off and killed himself. And he's a senior. Like, he was about to graduate. He was about to do all, like, I, I was thinking about this kid. I didn't know him, but it's like, that kid has everything that I was about to apply myself to. That kid has everything that I thought was going to bring me happiness and purpose and value. This, the world is 0-3. Like, this is just another lie that was sold to me as a truth. It's not a truth that I can trust. The, the lies that the world keeps surrounding me with are just changing and kicking my legs out from under me. And I got to the end of my college years, you guys, and I was more insecure, more hollow, felt like a more fake version of myself than I did before I started even trying these lies in sixth grade. And I tell you this stuff, not just because it's the passage that we're in for the night, but because I wish there was anything I could do to go back and tell junior high me, don't believe those lies. There's something better. We started the beginning of this night looking at all the people in our story and saying, 
They believed the Bible was true. They believed it was not just true, but trustworthy and worthy of organizing their life around. They let the Bible dictate their view of themselves, their interests, their goals, their actions, what they did with their lives. And you know what? They were onto something that I missed my entire education. And I, I tell you this as someone who, I don't know you, but I love you. I, I want what they did for you, not what I did for you, right? When we talk about the Bible as truth, it's not just an idea and you can push up your glasses and go, well, all right, I can know that it's true. This is true in the most deep, meaningful ways that matter to you, okay? So when you're asked the question, what is the thing that you organize your life around? I hope you see the fallacy. It's not worth it. It's a lie of the world to organize your life around what does it mean to be popular? What does it mean to be successful? What does it mean to be attractive? What does it mean to do what other people say is cool? They don't know. The God of the world knows. This, and this was, the, this was the thing that snapped me back and got my attention. When I saw over and over again, the world's wrong. The world's lying. My friends don't know. Remember, I didn't want to be a Christian. I would come across verses that while the world was saying things that weren't true to my experience, only the Bible was saying things that were true to my experience. Listen to this. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10. It says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything well, my phone's talking right now. Everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. From sixth grade to, what is that, 16th grade? That's me. All my pursuits were meaningless. Nothing was gained under the sun because I chased other truths instead of organizing my life around the truth of the Bible. Why does God care about this? Why does he want you to hear this tonight? It's because if there is a good God of grace and truth, and he sees you living in a world of lies, do you know what he wants to give you out of his goodness? He wants to give you truth to combat your insecurity, to combat the hollowness that those lies are pushing into you. Do you know that there are statistics and studies on this stuff, you guys? It's the scroll. They can measure teenagers' dopamine levels when you go through your Instagram reels or your TikTok or whatever, and what they find is that it saturates your brain, and then you almost have a chemical drug withdrawal afterwards when you can't access those things, and it causes anxiety, depression, and low self-esteem. These are statistically proven now. And God doesn't want that for you. He wants a bigger, better truth that he offers us in his word. He doesn't want insecurity for you. He wants to fill you up. He wants to give you joy and peace and love. That's why he put this book in your lap, because he loves you. But I want to give you just maybe two more minutes. I know a lady. I don't get to call her a friend because... I respect her so much that she's, she's like better than me, okay? And she teaches on this stuff. And essentially what she says is that the, the lies of the world that we need the truth of God's word for, they don't just come from out there. Some of them come from inside of us. Sherry would say on her low days, she has this voice in the back of her head that says, you're not good enough. You're not, you're not pretty enough. You're not smart enough. You're not funny enough. No one, people pretend that they like you. They don't really like you. Those things that you want to do in your life, you'll never be able to do. You're nothing. 
But the amazing thing, you guys, is Sherry is more like the people in this passage in John 1 than anyone else that I know. She doesn't let those things be the things that determine how she views herself and her self-esteem. Instead, she combats them with the truth of God. She, she literally made flashcards, and she starts reading herself. I got all these papers here. She starts reading herself verses like this to remind herself of the truth to push out the lies of the world. Just, just listen to these and let them be meaningful for you, too. Matthew 10, 29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Romans 8, 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 38 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This one might be my favorite. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Last one, Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things. Guys, to most people, they would hear what we just talked about and they'd say, you did too much nerd stuff. You read them too many Bible verses. Oh, I hope you value this. I hope this means something to you. The Bible is not an obligation. It's not something you're supposed to check off in the morning. It is the thing that a loving God of truth gives you because you need it in your life as you live in a world of lies. It's the only thing you have that you can trust, that doesn't change, that is good for you instead of eating away at your core, right? I woke up one night, laying on my bed, petrified because from my ceiling fan was descending directly above my face it, I'm not exaggerating. It wasn't the size of my hand. It was like the size of both of my hands. Like this tarantula, black widow thing. Just like right the horror movie music starts. Like, and I, I go, and I like push myself into the bed and I slime myself off, like just trying to stay as far away as possible. And in my underwear, I'm like crawling along the side of my room, like, oh my gosh. And I, I'm a newly married. I'm not even thinking about my wife whose face this spider is about to consume. You know what I mean? I am absolutely terrified going, <laughs> just frozen, paralyzed. And all of a sudden I hear this, honey, are you okay? And she flips the light on and I realize I was sleepwalking. There was no spider. I was completely safe in my house with my recently married, beautiful, amazing wife. Like life was not terrible, I was about to die. Life was amazing and the best thing on. And all I needed was somebody to wake me up, right? That's exactly what the Bible is, is God's gift to you. He says, you don't have to live in a world full of darkness and lies where you're, you just have to succumb and settle to 
insecurity and hollowness and depravity. That's not what I have for you. I want to turn the light switch on. I want to show you that you are a son and daughter of the king, that you are loved and given purpose. And the way that I'm going to give you that without having to wait on a pastor or a message or anything is the book that's in your lap. It's inerrant. It's infallible. I am the true God and I love you and I give you my true word. Read it. Let me pray for you. God, we love you. We thank you for tonight. We thank you for Hume Lake. We thank you that you don't invite us to blind faith, but that you're a God of truth. And God, that what you choose to do in your truth is lavish your love on us. Thank you for loving us with truth and grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.